Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Welcome back to Hardline here on News Radio 930 WBEN. Joe Beamer and Brenda Alacy with you. And you know, the one good thing, even if the Jays don't play at Salins Field, what about all the media attention Salins is getting? I think that's pretty good. You know, you heard in that ESPN cut, they're talking about, well, the Blue Jays could be playing at at Salem Field. I think that's pretty good for local business, getting a, a national spotlight. Joining us this segment with everything that's going on in the SCOTUS, uh, Ruth, ba- uh, Ruth, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, uh, we're going to be joined by Professor Peter Yakabuchi from Buff State. Professor, good morning. Good morning. How are you? I'm doing well. And, and before we get to the topic at hand, you know, we just had Dr. Richard Hughes from uh, superintendent from Frontier on, and I was wondering, what does the plan right now look like for Buff State? We have uh, a mixed plan. The, the We've been told that if uh, faculty members wish to teach in person, they are uh, able to do that. Um, but we also were given the option to teach remotely, uh, fully online, or some combination thereof. That's being worked out right now. I know there are some students that are planning to come back to campus, but I think most students are not. Okay, now are there some students that live on campus full-time that are still there, or is the campus pretty much shut down right now? We, we, do, we do at the end of the spring semester, well, I guess in March when we, uh, when we ended our spring semester, you know, as students on campus, some students did stay on campus because it was their only living arrangements that they had. Um, and I know there are some students, but not many, living on campus over the summer. All right. Dr. Yakabuchi, uh, great to have you on board with us. And I have to ask you, in your many years of teaching, uh, have you ever encountered anything where you would have to adjust in such a manner as we have with COVID-19? Where do you think this ranks among, you know, the most significant things in your career and the way you've had to adjust? Oh, yeah, nothing close. <laughs> nothing <laughs> remotely close. Uh, the you know, we, we, as everybody has been, we were watching the news through the spring, through January and February, and, and especially in March when it really caught the nation's attention. And then probably within it's at most a week, more like five days, we went from this is something that's happening that we need to keep concern of to we are, we are stopping as a, as a, essentially as a in-person campus. And, uh, the, the university, uh, gave us, uh, we had our one week of spring break. They added another week onto that. And so in two weeks, we converted all our classes over, um, hopefully somewhat successfully, but I'm sure there was a lot of hit and miss out there. 
but it, it was something. It was an experience. You know, um, when you do go back, there's certainly plenty to talk about, uh, including the latest news about uh, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who was undergoing chemotherapy for a recurrence of cancer, but says she will not retire. Uh, she's 87 year old, 87 years old, uh, professor. Uh, the woman really is, uh, no matter what your politics are, she really is amazingly resilient. Where do you think she ranks among justices who have been able to maintain their place on the court, given the various health concerns she's endured? Oh, I, I think she's an icon. I, I think uh, you can put her up, you know, as, as far as importance on the court, certainly in the last hundred years, certainly in the top five, the top you know, th those individuals. You had uh, Justice, her good friend, Antonin Scalia, who died unexpectedly. Um, but he was up there. He was the conservative icon, lion of the court, and really brought the court to, uh, dramatically to the right, not only through his opinions and his, his brilliance through his legal scholarship, but also through his personality of who he is. And I think what's interesting is you see Ruth Bader Ginsburg doing the exact same thing almost in the exact same op or in the exact opposite direction, especially when it comes for rights of minorities and rights of women. We would not have the rights that we have currently today in the United States for women and the recognition of women's rights and, and uh, protection of those rights if it wasn't for Ruth Bader Ginsburg. She started before she was a member of the court as an advocate for women's rights onto the court, and then once she joined the court, pretty much any uh, court case that dealt with gender rights was guided by Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Well, and you look at her history, you know, she was born in Brooklyn in 1933, and at 17, she lost her mother to cancer, and yet she was able to uh, you know, really shine academically and uh, go against the grain when she was, as she said, a woman and Jewish and a mother, and how difficult to overcome those things. Uh, and yet here she is, uh, certainly the most liberal justice, I would think, but on the Supreme Court and seemingly going full steam ahead, as she put it. Well, what's remarkable, as you mentioned, she's been, we just found this out this week, that she's been fighting liver cancer, which is her third separate bout of cancer since May. But she's kept a full-time schedule. Um, her work habits are almost legendary on the court. People have probably gone online and seen her exercise routine that for an 87-year-old, many people in their 20s can't complete that exercise routine. But it's not just that. Ever since she was uh, first admitted to the bar um, and after graduating from law school, she would put in 12 hours, 14-hour days working on cases almost unrelentlessly. And she has kept up that, uh, that process and that attitude and that, that work level even into her late 80s. Now this might you might this is a a question out of nowhere and I apologize to put you on the spot but looking at Justice Ginsburg and where her politics are mostly to the left is there a decision you can think of where she surprised people the way she voted Oh you mean that she she didn't vote uh, hard left I think yes I, I think if you look I think let me let me be more general and first and and then I'll pull back to Ruth Bader Ginsburg most of us, we, when we think about the Supreme Court, we see the Supreme Court when they're making a decision related to, let's say, abortion or to gay rights or to one of the cultural issues that we, that we are battling over in, you know, in everyday society. But that's just a small fraction of the cases that the court decides. The, the court hears right now under the current chief justice about 60 to 65 cases a year, and only a few of those cases really make the news. 
the court is much more in agreement than people seem to think it is. It is not a purely ideological court with the liberals always on one side, the conservatives always on the other. The majority of opinions decided by the Supreme Court are are uh, either unanimous, 9 to 0, or 7 to 2, 8 to 1, um, without a pure ideological split. And so when you look at those cases, Ruth Bader Ginsburg many times has sided with uh, a Clarence Thomas or uh, Chief Justice Roberts or even Sam Alito on the court, the more conservatives on the court. When it comes to the cultural issues, she's going to be a, a left-wing individual on that court. As far as specific cases, if you look at some of her decisions that have been um, recently on criminal justice or some of her decisions re- recently on tax issues, on sort of structural issues, administrative procedures issues, they're not always on what would be considered a left opinion. They're, they're either more moderate or sometimes they could slide even more conservative uh, in a traditional sense. Uh, Professor, John Roberts has uh, shocked some people, I think, and I know he's big about following precedent, um, but he stood up for the New York District Attorney's right to subpoena President Trump's business records as part of a criminal investigation. Uh, that was something that was surprising to many. How did you feel about that? Well, I, I think the people that were surprised haven't followed John Roberts through his whole career. Um, John Roberts is an institutionalist, and what I mean by that is he believes in in the think of what you were taught in junior high about the structure of our government that there are three branches of government there's separation of powers there's federalism john roberts believes that he also believes that the court in the court system not just the supreme court but the entire court system the criminal justice system has an independent role to play within our uh, governmental system to rule the other way to say that the uh the Manhattan DA Vance or uh, the New York State um, District Attorney James doesn't have the right to Trump's tax records over a a criminal dispute or a civil dispute would mean that that puts the president way beyond any other citizen. And that simply is not what John Roberts would accept. I think it's also you should note on for that particular opinion, for the Vance opinion, the court was essentially nine to zero. It says that President Trump does not have absolute immunity to be investigated. He is a citizen just like the rest of us. You know, and, and there's uh, there was some surprise, too, I think, with Justice Neil Gorsuch uh, with the ruling concerning the LGBTQ employment discrimination case. Uh, Professor, what was your reaction to uh, that ruling? Is it more of what you're saying about, well, you can't just assume they're going to follow their either liberal or conservative lines, as some might expect? Well, I, th- I think that's right. I think you can't just assume. I think in that case, I was surprised. And I wasn't surprised so much that the court came down the way it did. I was surprised at the strength of the language that Justice Gorsuch put in his majority opinion. He didn't just say that if a private business fires you for for your uh, sexual orientation, um, and that's the primary reason, then that's against the Constitution. He went much farther than that. He said that if you are firing an individual, if you are disciplining an individual for who they are, being their sexual orientation, that is against the Constitution. That is a much farther step than he needed to go. And I, and I was really quite surprised by that, that uh, the, a justice, especially a justice appointed by President Trump, um, would go that far, would, would take such uh, a measure as to essentially take 
sexual orientation now is off the board as far as constitutional issues. We're in just about every situation um, with the Bostock decision, that's the decision we're talking about, Neil Gorsuch made it that if sexual orientation is a uh, is, is used to discriminate against an individual, it's unconstitutional, period. No exceptions. That's just the way it is. Talking with Professor Peter Iacobucci from Buff State, my uh, alma mater. And Professor, a uh, question about the impact uh, thus far, it's been very early, of course, of the newest justice, Brett Kavanaugh. Uh, what do you make about how he's fit in and, and what he might bring to the court? I think what you're seeing with Brett Kavanaugh, Brett Kavanaugh is a very conservative individual. He was he was picked to be on the court because he was a very conservative individual. And we you see um, from his early decisions that you see a conservative, uh, a, a less establishment conservative that maybe a, a Chief Justice Roberts would be, and more a reactionary conservative, more like Clarence Thomas would be. I don't think, and it, this goes beyond uh, Justice Kavanaugh, it takes a few years for justices on the Supreme Court to sort of reach their, to fully hit their stride um, and, and to really let us know exactly what type of justice they're going to be. Um, that partly is the role of the court, the Chief Justice, um, assigns opinions, uh, who writes opinions if he is in the majority. And generally, he is going to be in the majority with Kavanaugh. They're both conservative. I think he has protected Brett Kavanaugh, and, and that's normal for a chief justice to do in their first or second year on the court and not assign them the most controversial cases, the cases that are going to be um, debated over and over again on the radio and on television. And I, I think that's what you see. I don't think this first year or maybe even next year, you're going to see much, uh, or you're going to see many opinions authored by uh, Kavanaugh that are going to be quoted for years to come. We'll know in five years, you know, what, what, which direction is he going to go? The indication is he's going to be a very solid conservative, probably right of uh, Chief Justice Roberts, um, uh, situated more with Samuel Alito and Clarence Thomas on that wing of the court. Um, and, and that's what I would expect from him going forward. Professor, as we um, are obviously in an election year, unlike uh, any other, and the health of Justice Ginsburg is out there. Now, again, obviously, prayers that she has a full recovery. And as you said, she is working a full schedule. Do you see the Supreme Court playing a role in the election as we get closer to November? Oh, I think very, I think very much so. I think you're going to see both sides. Um, I, one, Ruth Bader Ginsburg is beloved by the left. Beloved. It's just, you know, if you... Go, go on to any left website, you will see uh, T-shirts and, and stickers celebrating Ruth Bader Ginsburg. But I think if you look on the right, um, especially back in 2004 when George W. Bush was running for office, and then, of course, President Trump in 2016 made it a centerpiece of his campaign on the court, is we need to move the court to the right. Um, and I think both sides are seeing that. What is interesting to me is, if you look at this last year of opinions, you can say the court, although in a, based on public opinion, is probably to the right of American public opinion, it is somewhat centered. You have four justices on the left. You have probably five justices on the right. But in several cases, we've seen justices on the right, the Bostock decision being one, the uh, Trump's tax decisions being another, 
where a member or two members of the right have come over and joined the left, the court is centered, is a good way to put it right now. Um, and I don't think you want, I don't think the American public, whether on the right or the left, unless they're diehard ideologues, wants to see the court move dramatically off that center. You know, Professor, I just find the Supreme so interesting. Uh, you know, nine personalities, nine different political views, you know, different uh, rulings that they make based on uh, the law, of course, and I'm sure life experience. I, I'd have, I want to ask you about Justice Clarence Thomas who is often referred to as the silent justice because you never really hear him speak publicly. But boy, I sure remember the Anita Hill testimony and uh, all of the controversy surrounding his appointment. Do you think that that left a mark on this man that he just doesn't say anything because of what he went through to get onto the court? Oh, well, I think certainly his confirmation hearings have left a mark on him and, and will always leave a mark. They would leave a mark on anybody. Um, what, sure. what went on during those confirmation hearings. But I also take, and I, and I chide my students for this, my, my students will sometimes say, oh, Clarence Thomas, you know, he doesn't say anything during all our arguments, so therefore he's not paying attention, or therefore some negative criticism of him. I said, no, read what he said and why he doesn't do it. He said, my job is not to make the case for either advocates on either side of a case that comes before the Supreme Court. My job is to listen to the best words that the advocates have to say and then render a decision. That's a, that's a pretty strong argument. It is not his job as a member of the court to be tipping the scales one way or the other. And so while he is traditionally quiet, although in the last couple of years he has spoken during oral argument, um, he, he, I think there's a valid justification for why he doesn't speak in oral argument, and, and he has stated so. Um, the one thing I will say about Clarence Thomas is when he was put on the court, he was so far right to any single other individual on the court. And that's even with conservative members of the court. There are conservative members, as I've always said, there's liberal members on the court, there's conservative members on the court, and then there's Clarence Thomas. Clarence Thomas is far, far out to the right, even to the traditional conservative members on the court. What's happened in the last couple years is he's had the court the conservative members on the court move towards him. Justice Alito is closer to him than conservative justice before him. You see Justice uh, uh, Kavanaugh and, to a lesser extent, Justice Gorsuch are closer to uh, Clarence Thomas. So now Clarence Thomas has fellow intellectuals um, that agree to a large extent with his worldview with him, and that is giving him more influence on the court when the conservatives can win the majority. Professor, uh, before we wrap it up, I, I want to go back to the beginning. We talked uh, about Ruth Bader Ginsburg's uh, latest health crisis, and you had mentioned her close relationship with Antonin Scalia, uh, really kind of an odd couple, if you will. And I, I just uh, want to ask your opinion about whether you think we'll ever see that kind of relationship again, where they're so dug in on both sides, and yet they had a wonderful friendship and respect for each other. How rare is that? It's becoming more and more rare. And and this is something that commentators have, have noted about Washington, D.C., and to, to a lesser extent, our state capital. It used to be when you were elected to office, certainly you were a Republican, you were a Democrat, you were a conservative, you were a liberal. But you could gather socially with individuals on the other side. You could, you know, play golf together. You could uh, enjoy a dinner together. That doesn't happen anymore. 
which is tragic and makes their politics much more difficult. Democracy is about compromises, finding a center position. And if one side is entrenched on one side, the other side is entrenched on the other side, we get stalemate and we get situations where we can't solve our big problems. And it is especially problematic on a court. If a court simply the one side doesn't talk to the other side, then it just becomes a simple matter of who can get that fifth vote. And it leaves that person in the middle. Right now it happens to be the chief justice deciding all the major cases. I don't think that's the way the founding fathers wanted the court to work. The founding fathers wanted the court to be a dialectic where people get together, they discuss things, they change their mind based on what other people say instead of going in with an entrenched position. I think it's wonderful that Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Antonio Scalia were good friends. I wish we would see it more and more. Professor Yakabuchi, I love talking Supreme Court. It reminds me of my favorite episode of Boston Legal when Alan Shore went to go do a case in front of the Supreme Court and brought Denny Crane with him. One of the best shows that's never talked about, Boston Legal. Professor, thank you so much for joining us. I'm glad I could talk to you. That is Professor Peter Yakabuchi from Buff State. When we come back, we'll be talking to George Alexander after news here on Hardline. Welcome back. It is Hardline here on News Radio 930 WBEN. Joe Beamer and Brenda Alacy with you for just 23 more minutes. As Brenda said, things are flying by. Days are flying by. The last two hours have flown by. I feel like we just started. I can't believe we're in our last segment already. So, uh, by the way, if anybody wants to contribute, uh, text us or call us all at the same number, 716-803-0930. That's right. And joining us now, we have John, I'm sorry, George Alexander. You know, I blame Randy because Randy Bushover, I said George Alexander, and he said the guy from Seinfeld, whose name is Jason Alexander, but played George. So, uh, George Alexander joins us. George, good morning. Good morning. It's a pleasure being on your show. No, I'm not Jason. (laughs) Well, it's great to have you on the show. And uh, we are talking about the sad news that John Lewis passed away Friday night. And and George, just tell us what John Lewis meant to the black community. Well, John Lewis was an iconic leader, you know, in terms of uh, putting his life and value in the cause much greater than he did his own life. As we know that, you know, more many people are aware of the a march on Washington in 1963, and everything has been attributed to Dr. Martin Luther King, and rightfully so, uh, in his speech on I Have a Dream. But very few people are aware of the fact that uh, John Lewis was also a keynote speaker at that event. In fact, he was only at uh, age 23 at the time when he spoke. He was considered to be one of the, uh, part of the great six of the Civil Rights Movement. And so John uh, created a legacy that's going to be hard to fulfill, in terms of trying to protect the rights of those who have been disenfranchised, whether it be through voting or whether being treated differently because of uh, color or ethnic uh, background. Uh, So he certainly uh, was a person that, you know, raised the bar. And the irony is the same things that he was marking for when he was 23 and 25, you know, are the same things that we are uh, talking about and marching on today. You know, incidentally, you know, when we talk about voting, and we know that in, at, when he was only 25 years old uh, at the uh, uh, march on the Edmund Pettit uh, Bridge in, uh, in Selma, 
because of the injuries that he received there from the state police, that it spurred the signing of the civil rights, I mean, excuse me, excuse me the Voting Rights Bill of 1965. And so he left a, a one hell of a legacy. You know, George, uh, age, age 23, as you mentioned, uh, when John Lewis stepped up and gave a speech, he talked about wanting to be a maker of good trouble, and, and he certainly was. How do you think he had the maturity and, the, and just the wherewithal to get up there and speak at such a young age? What, what made him the man he is? Well, I think that, you know, certainly he was influenced by people like uh, uh, Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. and, and, and uh, Reverend uh, Vivian. And Reverend Vivian also was a iconic uh, speaker. And the fact is, you know, that he, Reverend Vivian died just several uh, hours before uh, John Lewis did. Right. Well, he had a lot of influences there. And also, you know, John was uh, influenced by the ministry, as most of the civil rights uh, workers in that area, in that era, was. And he was uh, called the conscience of the Congress. Uh, his influence obviously spread far and wide, not only as a very young man, but also through uh, more than 30 years in Congress. Uh, what, uh, what do you think his biggest impact was? Was it just making civil rights known uh, over that three-decade career in Congress, that he was never one to step back from that theory, that, that uh, principle? That and the fact that, you know, his legacy also included not only the rights for those that were disenfranchised, the African-Americans, the people of color, but for all folks, for all people. Uh, I think that he spoke from a position of wisdom as opposed to a, a position of uh, just reacting to situations as they occurred. Uh, when, we, when we looked in terms of him uh, demonstrating uh, because of the killings at the uh, Pulse uh, nightclub or the shootings at the high school, that he was very much aware and very much entrenched with what was going on in America and how it affected the lives of all people. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you said that because I think people might automatically assume that he was aligned only with rights for African Americans, but in fact he was a leader for all people, right? That's correct. That's correct. Yes. You know, and one of the interesting things is that, you know, we see Congress now as they debate back and forth and everything is pretty much aligned along party lines, that, you know, one of the things and one of the reasons why he was called the conscience of Congress, because when he spoke, when he took a position, he was able to capture the attention and the cooperation of people from both parties, both Republicans and Democrats. Yeah, and it seems to me that even somebody like uh, Mitch McConnell, who, of course, is a Republican from Kentucky, he quoted Dr. King, who said, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. Our great nation's history is only bent towards justice because great men like John Lewis took it upon themselves to help bend it. And you think about that, it's, it's quite a, a comment from somebody like Mitch McConnell, uh, whose parents actually opposed segregation. So, mm -hmm. George, it seems to me that somebody like John Lewis opened the eyes of people um, simply by being in Congress and talking to people about what's important in today's world. And not only opened the eyes, but garnered their cooperation in terms of helping to pass legislation and to take a stand uh, against those issues that prevent everybody from participating fully in the American uh, way of life. 
And, and George, what do you think it was like for, um, for Representative John Lewis, you know, who was part of the, was there with Martin Luther King, with Dr. Martin Luther King, and, and saw this country uh, come together and then saw a black man as president and then with his passing has seen the American flag at half staff in his honor? Uh, what do you think that says? What do you think he thought about that and what does that say about where we are today compared to back in 1968 well you know he was such an honorable person and i think that in terms of you know just out of him personally he would probably shy away from that and look in terms of what was better for the whole country as opposed to a personal honor uh but that speaks to the character of the man himself that he was much more concerned uh, with the plight of others more so than he was with himself but again, like I said before, he leaves a, a heck of a legacy, one that's going to be you know, hard for many people to follow. Uh, because he viewed life, he viewed uh, um, the way of life here more than he viewed uh, his own personal protection. We even see that going back to 1965 when he had his, his uh, head fracture. You know, that the cause was much greater than his own life. And so, again, I think that's what he would look at today is that, you know, what is America all about, you know, and have we achieved anything since, you know, we went through all these atrocities during the 60s and the 70s? You know, he and uh, Barack Obama had a very close relationship, and John Lewis was quoted as saying uh, at Obama's uh, inauguration that he was trying to maintain his balance, meaning he said, I don't want to have an out-of-body experience. I want to be able to appreciate this moment and look down the mall at the Lincoln Memorial where we stood so long before. George, what was your view of the relationship uh, these two men had? Well, one of the things, and I think it was a culmination of everything that John Lewis had fought for. Can you imagine, you know, growing up in the, uh, in the deep south uh, where segregation was the order of the day and where, you know, he had to fight constantly as a young man and and growing up trying to fight all of those different ideas and ideals that separated people, only to have it culminated into the election of a, of a black president. I mean, you know, and then when he talks about a lot of body of experience, I believe that's what he's talking about, is going from one extreme to the other to one where he can realize in his lifetime, you know, a person being of color being elected to the presidency. Well, and it was interesting, too, because it was uh, nine years ago that uh, Obama awarded John Lewis the Presidential Medal of Freedom, yes. of course, the country's highest civilian honor. And in March of 2015, they marched side by side across the Edmund Pettus Bridge on the 50th anniversary of Bloody Sunday. Yep, that's correct. You know, um, and again, that was just an uh, opportunity for him to revisit, you know, some of the things that he had experienced in the past, and it was you know, uh, kind of a, uh opportunity for him to share with other folks in present day, you know, what it meant to go across that particular bridge, only this time not having to, re uh, having it to emanate into what was then called Bloody Sunday. You know, George, we see um, going on now with protests ever since the murder of George Floyd. We see a country becoming more and more divided. Um, what do you think we need to see happen here um, in the next few months that would be in the respect of John Lewis to kind of bring the country back together? Uh, that, that's a really uh, difficult question. One of the things I, I think that we need to do is to sit down and really have open dialogue with people of all colors, all races, all nationalities. 
you know, and really start to look at things from a holistic standpoint. Uh, and judging people, as Martin Luther King said in his speech, judging people and making an honest attempt to judge people by their character and not by the color of their skin. I think that, you know, is the one thing that has separated, you know, this country more so than anything else is that we've judged people by the color of their skin. You know, that's where we get this whole idea of white privilege from as opposed to uh, all people of color, both brown and, and black folks, you know, not having that same privilege because they're judged by the color of their skin as opposed to their character. Uh, and so I think that's what needs to happen is we need to have some open dialogue. We need to have some positive uh, leadership on all, all levels of government, starting from the presidency on down, to recognize that we do have some problems in this country and that we need to sit down and start addressing those problems from a holistic standpoint. Uh, George, you know, given what John Lewis meant to uh, society at large, it's got to be awfully difficult to swallow what's been happening with all of the civil unrest. I mean, are you disappointed that there isn't more progress? Here we are in 2020, and yet we're still dealing with so many issues related to uh, racial division. How do you, how do you reconcile that? Here we are almost 60 years later, and we're still fighting the same battles. We're still, you know, having the same concerns with regards to uh, uh, differences in race, uh, police brutality, all those things that we would have thought because of such iconic leaders as John Lewis and Martin Luther King and Roy Wilkins and others, you know, that that would have at least dissipated by now. But we seem to have a resurgence. Of, of those types of attitudes that, you know, we're looking at people and judging them by uh, their color and their plight in life. Uh, I think that in order to get past that, we really need to look at creating some real opportunities, not creating dependency on government, but creating some real opportunities so people have an opportunity to fully participate in uh, this so-called American dream. Uh, it is disappointing because you would think that you know, by now with all of these different sacrifices and people giving their lives and whatnot, that we would be much further than we are uh, at present. And, Georgia, you've been a, an observer of race relations, uh, you know, your whole life, I imagine. And I'm curious, wh what's your view of the whole Black Lives uh, Matters movement? I'm supportive of the Black Lives Movement, um, only because it's a call for people to be recognized as being a part of um, the, the American fabric. You know, I'm aware that people are using the acronym that all lives matter, and certainly all lives do matter, but when you have any segment of society where their lives isn't created or treated equally, then you have to you know, look at it from the standpoint of in order for all lives to be uh, uh, matter, we need to make sure truly that all lives do matter and that we're addressing those concerns of black and brown people as well as other ethnicities you know, and making it a part of the total fabric. So until we address the needs of every segment of society, we can't really, you know, subscribe to the whole notion that all lives matter when you are uh, looking at one segment of society and then saying that they are not equal to the other. George, what do you say, though, to those who go and riot in the name of Black Lives Matter, not associated with Black Lives Matter? Uh, what do you say to those who are taking away from the message that's trying to be spread? Well, you know, you always have uh, opportunists, you know, that take advantage of whatever opportunity presents itself that doesn't contribute to that whole idea of trying to uh, create a holistic society. Uh, those are folks that are you know, pretty self-centered. Uh, pretty selfish, and they look at opportunities just to further their plight as opposed to 
you know, looking at it to further the opportunity for all people to uh, participate fully. Uh, those folks, uh, and I think our district attorney has addressed that in saying that those folks are criminals, uh, that they're looking for an opportunity uh, to cloak themselves in the veil of a movement to uh, satisfy their own personal desires at the expense of everyone else. That takes away from the movement. That takes away from the legitimate uh, part of the movement. But I think therein lies the other part of the problem is that we focus on that as opposed to the intent of the entire movement itself. Well, George, thank you so much for joining us on Hardline. We'll definitely have to have you on again, maybe for a longer segment and get into more of the Black Lives Matter movement and the protests we've seen around the country. Thanks again so much for joining us. Hey, listen, it's been a, a real pleasure. Thank you very much for your invitation, for contacting me. I look forward to maybe some future conversation. Oh, I definitely see us talking down the road. Thank you so much. That is George Alexander joining us to talk John Lewis and also the Black Lives Matter movement that we've seen around the country. Brenda, you still with me? I am still with you, Joe. You, uh, it's, it, your voice sounds like we've put it into some kind of voice-changing <laughs> machine. <laughs> Well, I guess we'll have to talk to our engineers about that. <laughs> it does. It, is, uh, it sounds like the phone call from Scary Movie. Oh, my goodness. The call's <laughs> coming from the house. Yeah. Frank's <laughs> cracking up in the other room. Uh, so we'll definitely have to work on that. Thankfully, it lasted for all but 10 minutes of the show. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, interesting stuff from George Alexander. And I definitely think uh, we'll have to take the opportunity to maybe talk to him for a full hour and really get into the racial divide in America in 2020 and, and what we've seen with Black Lives Matter and, and what we've seen with other groups that uh, may be taking the name Black Lives Matter, but not really in the spirit of the peaceful protesters we've been seeing around the country. Yes, and uh, along with that, you know, talking about John Lewis, Joe, it'll be interesting to see if Stacey Abrams ends up filling out his term. You know, if she does not get the uh, the nod from Joe Biden for the VP, we could definitely see that. I think that uh, she is probably a front runner at this point, and it might take pressure. Yeah, let's see if you can hear me a little better now. It might take pressure uh, off of Biden to pick her because he's talking about wanting a woman of color. And uh, if she's put in that congressional spot, certainly she could still be the vice presidential nominee. But uh, I'm wondering if that might uh, satisfy her yearnings, perhaps, to be in a high profile position and then maybe garner more experience in Congress and be more of a likely candidate in four or eight years. For sure. For sure. Well, Brenda, it's been another great episode of Hardline. And uh, let's say we do it again next Sunday. It sounds like a plan. I'll be here, hopefully not underwater. <laughs> Before we go, I just want to say real quick, happy anniversary. First, first year, one year anniversary to my sister and her husband, Nate. Also, happy anniversary to Katie. Yesterday was our two-year anniversary, the first time we talked to each other through uh, direct message on Instagram. Someone asked, I, I said, uh, two years ago, I slid into her DMs, and someone uh, tweeted, what's a DM? That's like a direct message. So if you message someone on social media, they call it a DM. And two years ago, I decided to uh, take a chance. And look, it worked out. So oh, I'm impressed that you remember those dates. Yeah, well, uh, I, I didn't. I had to look back on the 
Instagram and see that it was July 18th. And also, congratulations to my friend Mitch Gehring and his wife, Colleen. They got married yesterday, was able to watch it on Zoom. A beautiful wedding, and I'm so happy for them. So three things I wanted to get out there before we go. Brenda, we'll talk next week. Everyone else, we'll talk to you tomorrow right here on WBEN. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary.